Welcome everybody to our ongoing nightclub interview series where my guest today is the Islamic scholar Yusuf Al-Hur. But before we get started, a few brief housekeeping items. On September 22nd, we started our book study group based on my most recent book, Dreams of Light. And I have to tell you that if the first few sessions are any indication, this promises to be a really rich event. You can still join us, and we'll find a link for that attached to this interview. Now, as for my guest today, Yusuf is a really remarkable individual with vast stores of knowledge, as you will see. His overview of Islam was so thorough that when I conducted this interview, it only took a few minutes for me to realize we should devote the entire first interview to just this topic. I'm going to bring him back in a few weeks to discuss things like dream yoga from an Islamic perspective. But isn't it true there is so much misunderstanding these days around Islam, so much bad press? Yusuf brings to light the tremendous scope and profundity of this tradition and where we can go to learn more about it. I'm really delighted to have made contact with a stream of knowledge I know very little about from a scholar and practitioner of great depth. I think you'll agree. Welcome, everybody. Andrew Holacek here. I am really particularly excited about my guest today. It's a rare opportunity to talk with a mystical scholar from a, a different tradition where I um, hope to learn a great deal. So as usual, I start with a brief official bio, and we're just going to jump right in. So Dr. Francisco Jose Luiz, a.k.a. Yusef Alhur, was born in Luxembourg in a Portuguese working class immigrant family. He developed a deep interest for comparative religions and mysticism since his teenage years when he started practicing meditation. He completed two separate MA degrees in Indo-Iranian studies and in French and comparative literature at the Sorbonne University in Paris before doing his PhD in religious studies at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London on Sikhism. He taught at various universities in London, Toronto, Karachi, and his main research interests are Islamic mysticism and philosophy, Islamic art, the relations between Islamic, Christian, and Indic forms of mysticism. While working on his publications, he is also presently training in Arabic calligraphy and Middle Eastern music. And this is my favorite part, my friend, he hates instant coffee. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. So what, what an honor and delight. Um, we, just for our listeners, um, Yusuf is, is speaking live from us in Baghdad, and so we're going to do the very best with the interconnection that we have. Um, but in short, my friend, thank you so much for, for reaching out, for taking well, time out of your busy life to, to chat with us today. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm very honored, although I, I think the... Uh, I wouldn't see myself as a mystic scholar. I'm just, uh, I'm just a learner, and uh, I, I, I just try to share whatever, um, whatever I learn because there's no, you know, there's no monopoly on, on learning. Yeah, no kidding, yeah. no kidding. Yeah. So, so you know, it's, uh, I think it's, it's a healthy, uh, it's a healthy mindset just to see oneself permanently as a, as a learner. Yeah, the, 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 the beginner's mind that Suzuki Roshi talks about. But I, I want yeah, to say yeah, something yeah. 
at the outset, it's, it's very interesting. Um, <clears throat> I've been to Pakistan and I traveled up to um, the Hunza to Swat Valley and to, to what some students of Tibetan Buddhism listening may be interested in, which of course is, is Udiyana. And, and that's the land, of course, that um, gave birth to the great tantric guru, yeah. um, Buddha Padmasambhava, the, the great master who yeah. brought Buddhism from India to Tibet. So there's a, there's a very deep kind of geographical relationship to um, both Islam and Buddhism. And so I, I, I'm so excited to talk to you because I know so little about what you are now studying. And, and so therefore you have a relatively blank slate to work with. And I, I apologize at the outset, please forgive my ignorance of the nobility and subtlety of, of the Islamic tradition. And so I, I hope to correct that ignorance by engaging in conversation with you and um, learning from you. And so maybe we can start with a, a brief discussion about the relationship of, of Islam and what most students in the West know is, is kind of esoteric or mystical Islam, of course, which is Sufism. So, so maybe yeah. we can start there and then we can run free reign over a host of topics, eventually coming back to some of these amazing things that you have written to me about um, Islamic dream yoga and even Islamic bardo tenets. But why don't we start yeah. with something like that? Yeah, sure. Uh, Sufism, so Sufism is one form of, uh, and most, the most widespread form of uh, mysticism in the Islamic world. And the reason why I say one of the forms is because uh, Sufism is not so much a doctrine, it's actually a, um, it's an umbrella term to talk about uh, different lineages that exist within the Islamic tradition. Um, they're roughly, roughly around 25 to 30 orders uh, at the moment, orders and sub-orders. Uh, most of them actually belong to Sunni Islam and there's around five of them uh, that, that belong to Shi'i Islam. And so these are doctrinal differences, but pretty much the, the methodology is very, it's very similar. Now they all have in common the idea that um, we're talking about lineages that have teachers uh, who have um, transmission lineages going back to the prophet, uh, mostly through his uh, through his family, uh, the people that we call the Ahlul Bayt, the uh, the people of the house. So um, the prophet Muhammad had um, had a daughter, Fatimah uh, Zahra. Uh, who is really seen as, uh, in the esoteric traditions, as the manifestation of God's wisdom. The, uh, in Greek, or, well, actually, we, um, in, 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 in the esoteric terms, we would probably, uh, like rather Latin, we talk about the Sophia Eterna, right? The, the eternal wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, so she was married to the prophet's cousin, Ali, and Ali ibn Abi Talib, and so the offspring of, of that couple then becomes the, uh, the, the, the in the Shi'i tradition, they're known as the, um, as the holy imams. And uh, although they're revered also by traditional Sunnis as well, and it's within that lineage that basically the esoteric teachings of the Prophet were kept and then disseminated among both Sunnis and, and, and Shi'is, and that's why the, the family of the Prophet has always been a unifying factor amongst, uh, amongst all Muslims. And uh, while the political um, 
let's say, management of the community fell into the hands of other people, um, it's, it's been pretty much agreed uh, that uh, the, the household of the Prophet kept the esoteric teachings of the Islamic tradition. And so it's, it's, it, they're the channel through which they're, um, they've been transmitted. Um, for people who are familiar with Tibetan Buddhism, um, it's the, the um, for example, in mystical Shiism, the, uh, uh, the, the holy imams or the infallibles, as they talked about, um, there are 14 of them, meaning the prophet, uh, his uh, cousin and son-in-law Ali, and then Fatima, uh, the prophet's daughter, and then their, 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 their offspring. Um, they, they're basically seen as uh, the manifestation of uh, one divine light in 14 different personalities. It's something like a Tulku lineage, yeah. so to speak. And uh, the great scholar of uh, esoteric Islam, Henri Corbin, uh, talks about the notion of metamphotosis, meaning that one yeah. light um, travels into, into uh, it gets, well, travels through another personality, but it's always the same light. So there's, there's this idea there, and, and uh, so the, the, uh, the Sufi orders go back to, uh, to the teachings that you know, were transmitted by that family. Uh, initially, we, we, Sufism took the form of isolated ascetics, but then around the time of the Abbasids, uh, so around, let's say, uh, the ninth century, really, this is where Sufism becomes formalized into different lineages with each one ha having a specific, um, you know, methodology. Um, and uh, so the American listeners or North American listeners might be familiar with uh, the great Rumi, for example. Rumi is mm -hmm. one of the great personalities of the, uh, of the, of the Sufi tradition. And uh, I'd like to use Rumi to, 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 to highlight the fact that we're not talking here about some eccentric bohemian type human right. personality. Uh, Rumi was actually a teacher of Islamic law at a, at the University of uh, at the, uh, the equivalent of the, of the University in, in Konya. So these were people who were deeply steeped in Islamic law, in Islamic philosophy, and uh, dogmatic theology, but also had an a deep esoteric and mystical life. And the uh, and this is really what integral or um, complete Islam is about, meaning that you have to harmonize your, your esoteric with your exoteric. And if one, live, if, if one exists without the other, then there's a deep problem. Uh, and so um, I'm saying this because, uh, first of all, a lot of the translations out there of Rumi are actually not Rumi. Uh, this is a guy called uh, Coleman Barks, basically. Um, yeah, yeah you know, I know Coleman. Who, uh, <laughs> Who, uh, who, uh, who basically brings out these texts that are actually not of Rumi at all, actually his own invention. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very, I mean, it's good poetry, don't get me wrong, but it's not, it's not of Rumi. No People kidding. want to read Rumi, they should read the, the Masnavi, for example, or the Divan of Shamsi Tavis, or the, um, there's a really interesting book of uh, lectures that he gave to students and that were written down by his students uh, called the Fihi Mafihi. And these are, these are discussions where the es esoteric uh, teachings are mixed with concentrations on Islamic law and so on and so forth. So it's, um, it's to give an idea of what, what the, the 
Sufism is because very often people think that Sufism is a separate sect of Islam. That's not the case. Um, it's, it's, it's the mystical current of Islam. And it's a, and a 17th century um, dogmatic scholar by the name of Imam Laqani actually even stipulated that unless you're a Sufi, you're not a real Muslim. And so, um, because you need, you need to observe the exoteric, the external laws of Islam, the laws of purity, the laws of prayers and so forth. But you also need to have that interior life. You need to have this uh, battle with your own self and conquering yourself and, you know, and, and, and seeking union with the, with the divine. Uh, and unless you do that, you're not really a, a good Muslim, basically. And unfortunately, since the 19th century, a lot of that has changed the um, full and internal and external causes. Um, there were this, um, there's certain movements that rose during the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 19th century, known as Wahhabism. Um, that's and, um, it's a very sort of uh, normal centric sort of law only part of Islam and that basically took over Saudi Arabia with the help of the British and that gave birth to uh, the wave of fanaticism and, uh, and destruction and murder and terrorism that we know nowadays um, and it's quite interesting that when that movement came, came about, it was, uh, it was considered heretical by uh, the central authorities of, uh, of both the Sunni and Shia world. But, you know, when you have, uh, when you have petrodollars on your side it's, it's, and, and you're able to disseminate that sort of doctrine, it causes, uh, it causes great damage. And I've seen in Pakistan uh, the, the part of damage that the dissemination of Wahhabism does because the traditional Islam that people had in Pakistan was basically, be this, you know, Sunni or Shia, was a, a very mystical part of Islam. And then this wave of Wahhabism came over and uh, really poisoned the life of, 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 of the people of Pakistan. And just to give you an example, uh, the Buddhas of Bamiyan uh, in Afghanistan stood there for, you know, for, 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 for centuries. And it's only in with the rise of the Taliban, who were, you know, well, although they were not Wahhabis, um, had deeply anti-mystical tendencies, that these statues were destroyed. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, and the same goes to some of the uh, Buddhist heritage in Pakistan that was, you know, was sort of left, you know, um, left alone until suddenly. Uh, people thought that they had to go out of their ways to basically destroy all of that, and that's because of Wahhabi propaganda. So the what we're seeing nowadays in the, in the Muslim world is really, from a traditional point of view, really an anomaly. Um, doesn't mean it was always a bed of roses either. Where there's, there's been some, there's been some uh, some rather interesting characters in Islamic history. Generally speaking, um, what I always told my students in, in Pakistan was that um, if you look into the uh, belongings of your grandparents and great-grandparents, you're, you're going to be bound to find um, basically uh, um, a very long prayer beat with thousand beats, right? Um, which, are, which are, you know, nowadays quite exceptional. And these were used for um, intensive sessions of dhikr. The dhikr is the, the remembrance of the divine names. So it's like a mantra, basically. You, yeah. you, so there, God has 
the Islamic tradition has 99 canonical names that people can, can call upon. And uh, they're really seen as uh, medicine. So you have normally a Sufi master, a sheikh, who, depending on your spiritual development or the needs that you have, will give you a specific name of God and a specific number of, uh, of repetitions to do a day uh, to achieve the uh, desired result. And so people would do that. And people nowadays don't, don't do that anymore. That's, that's gone. That culture is, uh, is, is gone, except in small circles that have, that have survived. So, so yes. Yeah, I mean, what, what a fantastic, rich overview. And several things come to my mind. One is, um, first of all, you know, the kind of the egregious um, kind of mistake of attributing some of this poetry to Rumi, which, which also then begets to me the following question is, what, what else, from your perspective, what else, when you look at your understanding of Western interpretations of, of Islam altogether, what else do you see as egregious misunderstandings or propagations of mistruths that um, we seem to adopt in, in the West? So how, in addition to correcting this mistake uh, about Rumi, at a more foundational level, what, do you, what would you like to see corrected in the Western lens and in, in interpretation of Islam altogether? Well, that's, that's, it's a, it's a, this is a kind of worms because see the the um, the study of Islam in and of itself in in the West has never been a it's never been an innocent endeavor um, because um, there's this vice um, there's this um, there's this governor of Egypt the British governor of Egypt uh, by the name of Lord Cromer who basically, uh, in the beginning of the 20th century, set up the program on how to change the Muslim world to suit um, uh, West, uh, Western imperial and colonial uh, designs. Yep. And so he, um, he set out the idea that one had to, the West, the West had to reform Islam. And so scholarship on Islam in the West is, 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 has always had to struggle with this imperial strands yeah. whereby on the one hand you have the Samuel Huntington's who basically state that you know uh, Islam is always going to be eternally at war with the Christian world which is nonsense um, and then on the other hand the uh, the desire to create a sort of uh, liberal reformist sort of Islam that is basically uh, I call it the uh, soy latte cappuccino Islam, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and, and, and it's, uh, it's, it's extremely problematic to, um, to, to, one has to navigate between, uh, well, one has to deal with, with those, both distortions, right? And for example, um, so one of my main interests is the, is the study of Shia Islam. So up until, 1979, Shia Islam was not very much studied because Shia Islam was not very much of political interest, right? Uh, there was one great scholar uh, by the name of Henri Corbin, um, who uh, actually was a very good friend of, uh, of Carl Gustav Jung and actually was sort of, I mean, sort of his successor 
in the um, Eranos circles, uh, um, so Jung and Corbin and Mircea Eliade and uh, Suzuki and Gershom Scholem, all these great scholars would convene every year in this uh, locality in Switzerland, um, in Ascona, and would have these uh, workshops together. And so, so Corbin, who was, was a specialist in Iranian Islam, was, uh, was, uh, became sort of, after Jung died, became sort of the head of that. And, um, you know, up until 1979, um, you know, the, the Shia Islam was mainly known through the works of Omri Corbin. And he, <clears throat> because he was French and because uh, France didn't have, you know, didn't have any colonial designs in, in Iran or Iraq. So he was sort of, you know, um, he was dispensed with having to do with this whole sort of uh, political analysis of it all. So his main interest was basically mysticism and philosophy. And uh, if anyone is interested in, in, uh, in that side of things, I would really encourage them to read his books because um, this is a man who spends six months of his life uh, in Iran and then six months in the, uh, the rest of the year with spending in Paris teaching. Wow. And uh, he, he dug out all these amazing works of, of Iranian mysticism where, and we'll talk about it, the, the notion of the Barzakh, right? the, the intermediary world right. that is right. both the, the, the realm of vision, the realm of Bardo. dreams, and also the realm of, of the dead, right? Then 79 comes, the, the Islamic revolution comes, and then you see this explosion of, Shi of studies on Shiism, but that focus really only on, you know, the political aspect that, you know, Khomeini uh, brought about, right? Um, and, and, and what happened is that, so, that in the study of Shiism, this, this mystical aspect and philosophical aspect became less and less important, at least in, um, in Anglo-Saxon academia, whereas, um, uh, whereas in French academia, for example, this, this, um, this uh, interest in mystical and philosophical Islam uh, has continued thanks to the heir uh, to Henri Corbin at the Chair of Islamic Studies at the University of Paris, uh, who is now uh, Professor Amir Moezi, who is in, I would really encourage people to read his um, one amazing book he wrote called uh, The Divine Guide in Early Shiism. It's a, can, can I interrupt you? Let me interrupt you very quickly, my friend. Can, can you spell the sure. names of these authors? Because the, the oh, connection sure, sure, is a little sure, bit buggy, sure. and, and I, for one, want to track these books down. So can you spell the names yeah, sure. of these two authors so we can track down their books? So uh, Henri Corbin, it's H-E-N-R-Y, and then Corbin, uh, C-O-R-B-I-N. Uh-huh. Got it. And uh, then there's Professor Amir Moezi, so Amir, A-M-I-R, and then uh -huh. Moezi, M-O-E-Z-Z-I. Perfect. Thank you so um, much. Yeah, because I want to make sure yeah. we get this down so we can track down this, these sources. Terrific. Well, Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And, and they're, they're, they're amazing books. I have, um, you know, I have, I mean, especially Henri Corbin's books are, are books that actually change people's lives, literally. Oh. Um, I, had a, I had a very dear friend of mine, um, Dr. Seth Carney, who, um, who basically, uh, after reading Alone with the Alone uh, by Henri Corbin, uh, decided to basically engage in Islamic studies. He got his PhD from the same university as me. Um, he unfortunately uh, died in, 
13 years ago, uh, but an, an amazing scholar who wrote about the, the feminine divine and uh, esoteric Shiism. And uh, so what happens is that, is that the scholarship on, 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 on mystical Islam really depends on where it comes from and what political interests are behind it. And unfortunately, uh, especially after 9-11, you know, uh, but, but also since the Islamic revolution in Iran, the focus has been pretty much on, on politics. So there's no dearth, really, of studies on political movements in, in, in Islam. But there's um, but the whole mysticism and philosophy issue, uh, well, the dimension of Islam is sort of, you know, is sort of uh, has become marginalized in, in, in the academic world. There, there, are, there are very good specialists of, um, of mystical Islam. I, I would mention, for example, Paul, er, Paul Ernst, uh, who's um, at the University of North Carolina, who's, uh, who's a great scholar of Persian Islam, and who wrote a, a series of amazing articles on the relationship between mystical Islam and um, basically uh, um, tantric and yogic mysticism. Okay. Uh, so yeah, oh, it was amazing. So you have in, in, in the pre-modern era, you have this genuine curiosity that um, Muslim mystical orders and Sufis basically had for Indian mysticism. And you have translations of tantric and yogic texts that uh, basically circulate from Iran right up to uh, the Ottoman Empire. And, and uh, so it's 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 fascinating. Um, there's um, there's, for example, around the 19th century, you see the uh, the chakra system being adopted by um, by Iranian Sufis as the most appropriate way to envision the um, the the uh, well the uh, subtle the subtle body. So there there's this. this this sort of intellectual generosity that was there in 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 in, uh, in the Muslim world really contrasts uh, so much with what with what we're being presented today, and it, it's no surprise that this sort of thing is not going to be of any interest to people who have to write who who are being financed by think tanks and um, political think tanks and. Uh, and so on and so forth, especially when one knows that uh, several chairs of Islamic studies in America are funded by, yeah. uh, you know, by the Gulf countries yeah. themselves have absolutely, yeah, have, so there's, this is, this is, this is a big problem. Um, when I was teaching in North America, I, I, I saw, I was really in a quagmire and, and this actually prompted me to basically, in order to save my own academic integrity, to, to basically, um, uh, take my distances because uh, it, it, it's see it's it's very difficult to retain your academic integrity if you know the people who's funding your chairs decided yeah. that you know this is this is the political line that you have to follow yeah uh, which is a problem that you don't necessarily have in in, in countries like France or Germany or or Russia like for example that's why the scholarship on Islam that comes from um, that comes from Germany, Russia, or, or, or France tends to be less preoccupied by these uh, by these issues because it's you know it's state funded and uh, so surprisingly enough in the temple of secularism that is the Sorbonne 
you have this, uh, these groups of uh, scholars who are deeply into mysticism, sometimes uh, who are practitioners of mystical practices themselves. Um, you know, and uh, and that's not only for Islamic studies. Uh, even for Indian religions, you have people who uh, are practitioners uh, of, of uh, you know Indic traditions, such as Buddhism or different forms of Hinduism, and who are at the same time scholars. And that's not seen as a um, as really a problem. This this would be a problem in certain other academic environments and so there's a uh, I mean my advice the advice I would give to people who would, uh -huh. would like to read on these issues is to is to um, you know look for German, yeah. German or French scholarship uh, it's not to say that there's, there's all of the Anglo-Saxon scholarship on, on, on Islam is bad far from it um, but one has to see what kind of interests um, are behind that. As the, as the great um, you know, French linguist uh, Roland Barthes used to say, when someone speaks, you have to see where that person speaks from. No kidding. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so it's, it's um, you know, and, and it, it, that's, that's, that's been, a, that's been it's extremely problematic. And, and that's, you know, at some point, one, I mean, I've become tired really of, of having to constantly have to deal with these uh, this very binary way of presenting Islam. It's either um, Muslims are supposed to be either Muslims are hate you know hateful fanatics or they're uh, you know they're open-minded uh, alcohol drinking liberals. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know and and, and it's, uh, it's 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 more complicated, right? Yeah. And uh, it's, it's um, you know, and that's why I, 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 I think, um, you know, like, for example, before, um, I mean, I go to Iran quite a lot because it's, you know, it's part of my, it's part of my um, field of expertise, really. So my first trip to Iran was in 2007. And I was shocked. Uh, when I first arrived in Iran because uh, of all of the stuff that we had been told about Iran, right? Um, so this is not a statement here about the politics that are, I don't want to get involved in the politics of it all. But I found a, a society of you know, extremely educated people yeah. um, and, and, and uh, you know, with, with a... With a, 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 a I mean, go to any underground station in Tehran. You see young people reading. Uh, you see young people deeply invested in, in 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 classical music and this sort of stuff. Hmm. So, and I see a society that is, you know, deeply engaged with 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 with, uh, with culture, but also with, with compassion. Um, there's this. I was I was very much struck by this thing that there was an initiative. Um, uh, in, in, in Tehran, where um, people have, there was this wall next to a, a, a metro station, and they called it the uh, Wall of Mercy. So people leave bags of food there for homeless people, so that people, these homeless people, can come and pick them up. Um, because there's, especially in the East, there's this idea of preserving the dignity of the person who was begging food from you, right? So in order not to put that 
person in, in a sort of embarrassment uh, by, you know, doing the whole gesture of, you know, look, I'm so merciful. Uh, so people leave clothes and, 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 and food and uh, as a way of preserving the dignity of people who, you know, unfortunately are on the receiving end of, you know, life's um, tragedy. And, and this, and also the, the uh, you'll see that also in Turkey, uh, the, the, the deep compassion that people have towards um, animals, which unfortunately, for example, in some other Muslim countries has disappeared. Uh, in the Ottoman period, um, uh, the, the, I mean, at, at least the realms that were under the, uh, the authority of the Ottomans were known for um, this extreme compassion for animals. For example, butchers had to, um, after a certain month of, of exercising their, their, their job, they would, they, would, they, would, they would have a paid holiday by the state because um, the fear was that the sight of blood and of slaughtering animals would corrupt the heart of the butcher. So oh, wow. they were sent, yeah, yeah, they were sent home and, and, and they were encouraged to plant, you know, um, to plant flowers and so on and so forth to, to you know, bring back this idea of, you know, giving life. Um, or, 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 for example, we have these um, religious endowments to feed cats and, uh, and dogs. Um, we even have in, in, the, in, this, in, the, in the way that mosques were built, uh, so we have uh, at the level of the, the floor, we have these uh, little holes that were built so that rainwater could accumulate so that, you know, cats would be able to drink that rainwater. I mean, wow. that was, so that's, that's a culture that's basically, you know, in, inspired pretty much by Sufism. And, and unless you see this, See, uh, uh, unless you actually live here on a regular basis, you're not able to pick up on these issues. And one yeah. of the big problems that scholars, uh, Western scholars have is that, you know, they come for one month maximum to a Muslim country to pick up manuscripts. And then they go back to Oxford or Cambridge or whatever yeah. and write their, you know, amazing works of, of scholarship. But uh, as I tell my friends, you know, once you live in Baghdad and you have to, you have to live with the water shortages, with the electricity cuts, um, and and because I live in a, a, a working class neighborhood, it confronts you with the, with the realities that you know that people live with on on a, on a daily basis, and this is where the true treasure is. You know, that this is where. Um, the true treasure is not so much in, 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 in the books that I'm talking about. It's really in the people where this sort of stuff has still been preserved, despite of the fact that, you know, much, so much has been lost. There are, you know, there's still people around who, who, who preserve that, and especially amongst the older generation, the, the, the generation of my wife's um, grandmother. Uh, a lot of them are actually... I mean, they're just—they're completely out of this world. I mean, people who um, who insist on forgiving, you know, people who wronged them, and people who wake up in the middle of the night and and um, pray for forgiveness for their own sins, but also pray for the forgiveness of other people, right? And with tears in their eyes. It's not the—and they do this—and they do this always in in seclusion. That uh, there's an insistence on not showing off your piety. It's extremely touching in that generation. And so you you have that. You know, and I have 
you know, and, and uh, especially in, in Iran and Iraq, there's, uh, there's many, many encounters I've had with people like that, that, um, you know, when, when you see people, you see wisdom embodied, um, and, and it's not just basically, you know, contained in a book, but it's actually embodied by real people, and, and it touches you at a, at a very, uh, at, the, at the core of your very being, that's, that's, you know, that's what it's worth, what it's worth. And um, I, 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 you know, I, I, I thank God for every minute that I'm, I'm very privileged to, to be living in the surroundings I'm, I'm, I'm in right now, because there's, there's so much I'm learning as, uh, not just as a scholar, but really yeah. as, a, as a human being. So yes, I mean, direct experience is just cannot cannot ever replace uh, the the, the uh, can, oh, sorry direct experience. Oh, sorry, scholarly experience can never replace uh, lived experience in in, in 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 those countries. And one of my big reproaches to uh, to people in 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 the scholarly world is that they very often don't have that um, you know. That sort of lived experience in, in in the societies that they so eloquently describe in their books. That's not to say that their scholarship is 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 is, is worthless. Much of it is very good. Right. But there's so many other things that you know that um, that are left out. And uh, you know, I mean, when whenever I come back to Europe to visit my family and. You have friends coming over and they tell me so what's Iran like? You know, we hear all this stuff in the news. I always tell them, just uh, take a trip, go visit Iran and see yeah. for yourself. Yeah. And the overwhelming majority of the people who went um, came back pretty much uh, blown away because you know, politics is one thing. Yeah. And but the the culture of the people is 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 another and if if um and, and i hope that you know once that once that iraq becomes safer that you know people have the the ability to uh to visit iraq as well and people of iraq are actually uh, they're, they're, it's amazing absolutely amazing and the, the, i mean there's a you know thousands and thousands of years years of history, I mean, this is the quote unquote, you know, birthplace of civilization, right? Yeah. And uh, it's it's uh, it's amazing. Like my wife, for example, comes um, her family comes from the marsh regions, uh, southern Iraq. These are people that literally live in the marshes and they live they live on these uh, sort of floating islands and in these houses made of, uh, of reeds. And this is a this they've been living like this for the last four thousand years. And if you ask them, they wouldn't, they wouldn't change that ever. And, um, and it comes with a specific culture. For example, uh, you know, young men who want to propose to uh, uh, propose for marriage, they, they need to be able to have the ability to compose poetry on the spot, for example. Right. Beautiful. And you know this sort of you know this this sort of thing you know gets lost once once you have this sort of like bookish sort of absolutely scholarship. That, yeah. Yeah, I mean you're you're hitting on so many really incredible points here, and and what the one thing I want to um, kind of toss out to our listeners is that I think what you're sharing with us is so incredibly important that that what what I'm thinking of doing here is 
not just kind of sprinting through to get to the candy that we've been talking about, you know, in our yeah. emails, how these teachings connect to the esoteric um, tantric dream and, and bardo yoga. I, I, yeah. I do want to go there, but I, I, I think yeah. what is actually more important is to create this, this platform of communality, of, of deeper understanding of what Islam really is, because, you know, of, of, as you know, of all the traditions, this is the one that is just so infected with projections and imputations that are just not at all in resonance with what's happening. And so yeah. I, would, I would prefer, with your permission, to, to actually continue mm -hmm. talking sure. more about these foundational <laughs> principles so that sure. people understand the context that when we come back at a later time, and talk about some of the more specifics in, in kind of this cross-cultural comparative um, religion thing, it'll have more traction. So along those lines, what else, um, if you were king, right? Okay, so we've got King Yusuf. If you were king, what else would you want Westerners to know? Uh, I, I wanna keep coming back to that because I, for instance, what you just said about the disembodied academic scholarship, the kind of, anesthetic that takes place when the academy goes and just stays locked up in the libraries and doesn't get into the streets and see the embodied spirituality that is part of your tradition. That in itself is revelatory. Um, so maybe just say more about what, what it is that you would like us to know as a, as a Western population, um, not only in relationship to Sufism, but but to Islam in, in general, because what you're sharing so far is just really a wealth of insight, of understanding that, again, when we return to some of these deeper issues, it'll have more impact, because yeah. at least then we have some lineage, we have some tradition, we have some context, and, and people understand that, you know, like me, it's like I had no idea that there were these nuances and subtleties. Um, and so what else yeah. comes to mind about things that the West... Um, their imputations, their, their omissions. What else would you like to see uh, propagated or at least you know, corrected from the Western interpretation of not only Islam? <clears throat> if one has to really go to the core of things, I think it's, um, it's the life of the Prophet and his family. Because, see, there are conflict, conflicting portraits of, 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 of the life of the prophet. And these go back already to, you know, um, sources that, you know, to the sources themselves. So, they're, they're, but, so here's the issue, for example. Uh, one thing you very often hear is that the prophet married a six-year-old girl and consummated the marriage when she was nine, right? Um, so her name was Aisha. And so, and this is something that's propagated uh, through a lot of the literature in the West about the prophet. Whereas, uh, for a great deal of the, for a great deal of Muslims, and especially people who are traditionally um, uh, trained, um, that tradition in of itself was 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 already very much suspicious. And we have a whole range of other sources that say that, for example, Aisha was much older when she married the prophet, right? And so what, what, what needs to be done, I think, it's, it's um, you know, understanding that the way Muslims see the prophet, and I'm not, so, I'm not talking here about emotions, I'm just talking about the facts. 
um, that apart from the fact that there's, there's, there, are, there are indeed within the original source some, um, some conflicting reports, but these, um, but the, the, the thing is that the, what, has, what has been retained by the tradition is a being of pure mercy. And so what we have is a person who used to forgive his enemies. Um, so um, there was this woman, for example, who in the first years of Islam, she, she would, uh, whenever the prophet would be praying, and would, when he would be prostrating, he would throw, she would throw trash on him, right? Uh, and his daughter, Mrs. Zahra, would basically you know, clean, him, clean him up. And then when eventually, you know, uh, when his mission uh, as a prophet basically succeeded, um, you know, he, he asked about her and he forgave her, right? Um, this is, a, this is a, a person who was very fond of, uh, very fond of cats, uh, someone who loved roses, or someone who, um, whenever, whenever it was raining, he would just go outside and basically stretch his arm out and, and, and just stand in the rain, right? There's a very poetic dimension to, to, to the prophet. And, um, and I would, the way I would, the way I would describe it is try to, try to see how Muslims perceive the prophet. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I'm not talking about how people from ISIS or Al-Qaeda see the prophet. Yeah, right, right. Uh, because these, these, guys, these guys and Islamophobes share the same sources. I mean, yeah. they, uh, if someone tells them, you know, the prophet married a six-year-old girl, they will say absolutely, and they'll do it, right? Uh, but I'm talking about the, the you know the, the, the traditional Muslim, you know, uh, try to try to see how he has been perceived in the in, in, in the Islamic tradition, and what he has um, what he has prompted as a civilization. Um, because um, my interest in Islam, for example, if I have to talk on a personal level, I my interest in Islam was prompted not by the news or by theology, but simply prompted by a painting uh, that represents the heavenly ascension of the Prophet. Um, so in Islamic tradition, Prophet Muhammad is said to have, uh, to have basically ascended the, the, all the different levels of the universe up to the throne of, of God and to have basically met God. Um, and so contrary to what a lot of people think, for example, uh, in the medieval Islamic tradition are, uh, you know, representations, there are paintings of the Prophet. Um, and so you have this beautiful Persian painting of the 16th century um, that represents uh, the, the Prophet uh, sitting on this mythical uh, horse called uh, the Burak and ascending the heavens and surrounded by angels and having this sort of uh, fiery halo around him. I was 11 years old at that time, and I had only two questions, which, is, um, which were, uh, who is this person that God loves, loves so much that you know, he, he brings him close to himself as if, as, if, you know, as if that person were actually a mirror? And the second question is, who is this person who actually inspired this wonderful work of art? And the reason why I'm so, I'm so, you know, one of my, 
areas of research and, and of teaching is Islamic art because, you know, once uh, once the kings and sultans and emperors and ayatollahs and sheikhs and so on and so forth die, the only thing that's left is art. Hmm. It's the it's the it's the it's the legacy of what uh, civilization leaves behind. And when one looks at Islamic art, one one can only um, one can only just basically stay in awe. I mean, because what happens here is that we're dealing here with a tradition that creates beauty with mathematics, that states that you know beauty is not some you know some subjective thing. That there's this objective thing out there called beauty, and that beauty can be known through the medium of well, I thought that beauty expresses itself through the medium of mathematics. And you know, and it's it's so studying a, a religious tradition through through its art is actually what what um, what it gives you a better idea of, of what that tradition really is because you know uh, Saddam Hussein died, uh, presidents die, uh, yeah. you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, political systems come and go. But what, what, what remains is, is, the, um, is the art, and it's the art. The art, I would say that art is really a, a school of theology in and of itself. And yeah. it gives you, and I think that artists have this amazing ability to translate, um, you know, concepts in such an amazing way that sometimes, you know, theologians themselves can't, 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 can't reach because, you know, art reaches everyone. And you know, once you see the Taj Mahal, for example, or you see the um, if you see Esfahan, the city of Esfahan in Iran, which I think is you know, probably one of the most beautiful cities I've, I've ever seen in my life. It's I, you know, it's it's impossible not to fall in love with that city. Uh, once you visit the the Naqsh Jahan, the main square of Esfahan, which actually is the second largest square in the world. Surrounded by the uh, these two amazing you know mosques and the palaces and so forth, and how it's actually part of everyday life because the uh, the mosques and the palaces have been built around the uh, the, the bazaar. The, the, I'm sorry, the, the, I mean, the all around the square you have shops and and workshops and restaurants mm -hmm. and so forth, and so it, it's you cannot fall in love. It's this beauty element that is uh, and that goes back to someone who in the seventh century um you know was seen as embodying um these the, the notions of mercy and of beauty and and and, and of majesty there's uh, recently a a um a video was done by a group of french muslims and um so the, the the video shows a, a French teacher uh, asking, you know, asking students to basically you know, draw the Prophet Muhammad. I, I think it's a fictitious, uh, um, it's a fictitious scene, but the young boy in the scene says that you know I can't draw the Prophet, not because it's forbidden, but I will never be able to describe the type of smile that he has, and so on and so forth. And I think that people really need to. Um, to see how, yeah, how Muslims, traditional Muslims view things, uh, view, view the Prophet. There's a very beautiful book written by an amazing German scholar, um, 
who was also an amazing woman. I mean, apart from being a scholar, she, she had an amazing life. Anne-Marie Schimmel. Um, mm. So Anne-Marie in one word, and then Schimmel, S-C-H-I-M-M-E-L. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she wrote a book on, 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 on the prophet that um, is not so much a biography, but uh, it, it shows basically how the mystical tradition of Islam has viewed the prophet and how it expresses itself in poetry. But by the way, she wrote the best introduction to Sufism. Um, it's called Mystical Dimensions of Islam. And if anyone wants to have a, a good introduction to Sufism, she wrote the, that's the, that's the authoritative book. It's an amazing, amazing, it's... Uh, Can you give me the title? On, give me the title one more time. Yeah, it's Mystical Dimensions of Islam. Mystical dimensions of Islam. Okay. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, I think probably the best introduction I've ever read on, on, on Sufism. Beautiful. So I think yeah, and and uh, apart from the Prophet, of course, there's uh, you know, there's uh, there's the other people who are part of the prophetic household. Uh, you know, Fatima the Zahra, the daughter of the Prophet, who was um, you know, she was so dear to the Prophet that uh, whenever she entered. Uh, uh, the room and often was there with his companions. He would stand. Uh, he would stand. Uh, he would stand up for her in, as a sign of respect and kiss her hand. And she was seen as a. She's a how to, how to put it? Yeah, she's she's really the Sophia Eterna, the the, uh, the eternal wisdom, but with walking on earth, so to speak. And so um, she is. She in the mystical tradition, she's really seen as the the sort of a, people familiar with Tibetan Buddhism as a sort of Tara, right? The sort of uh, yeah. female, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, you know uh, embodiment of prajna, of, of, of wisdom. And that's what she was. And, uh, you know, uh, her husband, Ali, was uh, seen as the embodiment of chivalry. Um, who, um, you know, um, even after great battles, um, he could not bear the sight of people. In, in you know, uh, put in chains, you know, someone who would visit prisoners uh, regularly, uh, someone who uh, even whilst praying would give charity to, to, to beggars and made it a habit to go incognito at night and, and, and give charity to people, feed the orphans and so on and so forth. Um, and there's a very famous anecdote, uh, anecdote of, uh, of uh, some orphans who were crying, and then Imam Ali, who was in those days was the, the caliph, was uh, the head of the entire Islamic Empire. He would go, he, he would go on his um, on his wall, uh, uh, sorry, on his walls, and then uh, would imitate the sounds of, of animals and make them laugh. Um, this is actually someone who uh, who, who lost a lawsuit, um, you know, to uh, this Christian man who was wearing a coat of mail, and uh, Imam Ali said, "Well, this this coat of mail belongs to me." And he said, "No, no, no." The Christian man said, "No, it belongs to me." And so they went to court, and uh, so this Christian man could take the head of the of the government to court over this um, coat of mail. And so the court, the, the judge asked him, like, you know, Ali, can you prove that this is, this is your code of mail? And Ali said, well, I can't prove it. I can, it's just my word. And so he lost his case. And then later on, the Christian man actually said, well, this code of mail was actually yours, but I just wanted to see if, if, you know, if a Christian man could actually get justice under your government. 
Wow. So we have all of this, and then and the last one I'll mention is uh, is uh, Hussein, the grandson, who was um, was killed in in Karbala in uh, in Iraq uh, by the people who later on you know took over the 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 chains of power, the the, the, well, the you know political power in, in in the Muslim Empire, and one has to one has to really you know realize what that means. It means that. 50 years after the Prophet die, died, uh, his own grandson was butchered along with 72 of his you know, um, knights. And the, the women of the house of the Prophet were being dragged in chains to be sold as slaves, uh, which eventually didn't happen, but that was the intention of the people. And so that, you know, one, one realized that from the very beginning, there's always been this tension between, on the one hand, this sort of like imperial islam and then um and then this other vision of islam that you know sees itself more as a, a vehicle of mercy and uh, one, one really needs to i think the best way for people to understand all that is to study the lives of uh, of these people really. it's remarkable i mean so many things come to mind here one when you were talking really so beautifully about the role of art you know I, i'm um, reminded of when we when we frame our art, um, it's not just what is kept within the frame, but also what the frame keeps out. And in this case, in a, in a deeper kind of archetypal sense, um, what the frame keeps out is, is the inauthenticity, the politicization, the all the you know, um, well, just the 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 defilements that um, would otherwise stain it, and, and so. It's very interesting to me to hear that you can find, you can study um, the real heart essence of the Islamic tradition by studying its, its artistic legacy. And I, I would suspect that this is one reason why, you know, you've been sending me these really beautiful calligraphies of your own. So you, you yeah. yourself are practicing what you're, so to speak, preaching, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've, I've always made it a, a principle of mine not to... Um, I mean, I'm, I'm far from perfect, but, you know, I, I so when I, when I teach and I, I speak about calligraphy, I need to be able to demonstrate what it is and, and also what it, you know, what it brings to my life. Um, in the same way that, you know, when I speak of uh, the notion of Futula, which is Islamic chivalry, you know, uh, I don't think my students could take me seriously if they didn't see me, you know, practice horse riding archery, right? Uh, so um, it's it's uh, it's I think it's important to, for for, a, um, for someone in a teaching um, uh, profession to be an embodiment um, of of what they're talking about. Yeah. Know, because otherwise, there's this 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 disconnect. Absolutely. Um, but calligraphy has been a, literally yeah. a lifesaver for me. Uh, it's um, it's helped me deal. Uh, it's helped me deal with trauma um, pretty much in the same way that Jordan Peterson tells people like, you know, yeah. through depression that they should clean their room, right? Uh, so that, you know, because it's the space over which they have control and then like, you know, incrementally they can, they can bring order in other parts of their life. And for me, it's been about basically bringing uh, harmony on a, on a page of paper, basically. Sorry. <clears throat> And um, 
one, when one reads uh, the whole literature about uh, Arabic calligraphy, one, one has this idea of, uh, you know, uh, calligraphers are, are, these, uh, are these people who, um, you know, who, who use the ink of their own suffering to write, uh, to write letters of light that keep away the darkness. And uh, it's, a, it's, a very, it's a very beautiful alchemical, you know, uh, analogy that's, that's used here. And the beauty about calligraphy is that it's enabled a lot of working class people to achieve extremely higher positions. And uh, it's really interesting that um, in whatever empire, uh, scribes tend to, you know, as, as secretaries, tend to, you know, have a lot of influence over, over, the, over the rulers. And, uh, and very often these scribes were people who came from very poor you know, working class backgrounds. Some of them were even ex-slaves and, um, or even slaves themselves. And they managed to basically reach the, um, the top through mere meritocracy, through their talents and their, and, and, it's, um, and it, 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 it shows how, you know, the education in beauty is not something superfluous. It's not a luxury yeah. at all because okay. you're, you're, you're educating a human being. And um, one of the conditions, I mean, proper Arabic calligraphy has a certain number of rules, uh, apart from the measurements of the letters. It's, it's very different from, uh, for example, Japanese shodo calligraphy, where it's all about, you know, bringing out the spontaneity within you, right? Uh, in Arabic calligraphy, you have very specific rules, like each letter has a certain number of dots that measure, you know, the length and, 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 uh, of, of the letter. So you have to respect all of that. And so, but the, 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 the letters in themselves are, are because they're, they're also the letters that are used to write the Quran. The letters in and themselves are seen as pills of, of the sacred. And so when practicing calligraphy, you should be in a state of ritual purity. You have to do yeah. these ablutions. And, and it's a sort of, uh, you know, it's a sort of uh, writing uh, meditation. It's a sort of, it's a form of kin hin, to, to, you know, to use a, a, a Zen term, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a whole, there, there, there are, um, there's all importance given on, uh, uh, you know, proper breathing. And uh, it's, um, it's an amazing art. I think, um, I mean, one of the things I would do in, in, in when teaching, for example, uh, Islamic art, either in Toronto or in Karachi, was to get my students to produce either a, a piece of calligraphy or of Islamic geometry themselves. Mm -hmm. And I had some students produce some amazing stuff, like um, at our university in Karachi, um, there was, um, so there's, there's this female prayer room and whenever people would open up the door, people could look inside. So the, you have this group of girls who basically designed this, um, this sort of uh, um, wooden structure with geometrical patterns. And what they've done is that they've, um, because in, in, the, in Islamic mysticism, you have this doctrine of, uh, just like in, you know, in the Kabbalah, of converting uh, words into numbers. Right. So they they converted a specific surah, a chapter of the Quran called Al-Kawthar, the uh, one of the apostles of heaven, um, which is actually also another name for Fatima Zahra, the daughter of the Prophet. And so they they took all of the words of that of that surah, of that of that chapter, and they converted into numbers. And then using their numbers, they found out the geometrical forms to create that panel. Oh, wow. 
Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. It's this, and the thing is, this is that wow. you know, once because these are all students who were destined to become engineers and accountants and, and so forth. And then once you confront them with the idea of you know, this is not just a course where you, you, know, you learn theoretically about Islamic art. I want you to actually live that reality at least for a semester. And then you see amongst uh, a lot of students this. You know, sparkle in their eyes, and uh, you know, and 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 that's uh, that's amazing. And there's something another. It's, it's a similar experience I've had when uh, at the same university I was teaching um, mindfulness meditation. I was giving a, a workshop every day for a semester, uh, where I would, uh, for an hour I would just be sitting. I would basically have this room where people would come in and do mindfulness meditation, and I actually taught some of these people uh, the techniques of lucid dreaming. Mm. Wow. And it's amazing when at the end of a semester, you have this student coming up to me and saying, Professor, I was skeptical because I thought I couldn't dream. I had a lot of students who would come up to me and say, I, I can't dream. I, I don't know why you're telling me to keep a dream journal. I told them to keep the dream journal. Yeah. And not only were they able to dream, like, you know, dream for the first time, but then when they became lucid, it's just, you know, there's this sparkle in their eyes, right? Yeah. It's it's amazing, and that's and yeah. that's what I that's what I love about the job that I do. It's it's uh, when you give other people the yeah. keys to their own autonomy, that's uh, right. intellectual as well as spiritual autonomy. It's it's amazing. That's what you know. Yeah, uh, um, so many things to talk about, and it's actually interesting how our conversation is naturally transitioning um, to the interior domains, and 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 this is one direction where I can start to take it, and then maybe we'll continue. A little bit further in a, in another session, but one uh, one comment I had to make here um, is that you know in in the Buddhist tradition, as you probably know, art exists uh, kind of at the frequency, so to speak, of the Sambhogakaya, and and that that interiority is in fact where the Sambhogakaya abides. There's often this this notion, I think, misunderstood that similar to heaven, perhaps that these divine arts lift us up and out well yeah perhaps provisionally but they really i think more um honestly take us down and in and and so uh, very similar when um tibetan tanka painting tibetan calligraphy is is undertaken as this kind of contemplative practice it's really this i use this uh, analogy of you know walking the labyrinth into the center of ourselves and so we're we're actually tapping into the interior domains. And so as we ourselves make this transition in our conversation into the interior, you're starting to, to intimate exactly where I wanted to take our conversation before we transition, you know, specifically into dream yoga, bardo yoga, um, and the like. How, if, if I'm not being too obtrusive, in addition to what you're already sharing with calligraphy and mindfulness yeah. practice, how, how do you practice your, your spirituality? And, and even do you see that as in fact Islamic spirituality, or do you actually come to realize it as a kind of trans-spiritual practice? That's very interesting. I think that, I mean, the more I'm looking into it, I think that there seems to be, from, from the Mediterranean to Tibet, there, there seems to be a, a, a commonly shared uh, mystical grammar, so to speak. Um, that one finds, for example, in Eastern Orthodox hesychasm, right? The, uh, what some people would call the Christian yoga. Yeah. Uh, or in Islamic mysticism, 
and uh, and then in Tibetan Buddhism, uh, which I, I Tibetan Buddhism is, is very it's, it's you know it's 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 this fascinating you know own thing because uh, as you as you know right uh, that you know the uh, the forms of esoteric uh, Buddhism one, one has in Japan such as for example uh, you know Shingo, um, Shingo. The, the, the Shingo school don't have dream yoga right, That's right. Uh, or don't have don't have uh, rainbow uh, uh, rainbow body uh, and um, you know and and so I have this uh, I happen to know this this amazing uh, Jesuit priest that was also an academic father uh, Francis Tiso. I know I've read his and, book, Resurrection and the Rainbow Body. He's yeah, amazing. yeah. Oh, yeah. He's, oh not, as a scholar, he's just amazing. Uh, and as a human astounding. being. Astounding. Yeah, astounding scholarship. As, as a human being, he's, yeah. he's just, he's just uh, wow. I, I, right. I um, right. you know, I, 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 I uh, you know, when I, was, when, I was, uh, when I was a young lad, I, 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 I you know, I, I flooded with the idea that I grew up Catholic, right? I, I, uh, I flirted with the idea of becoming a, a priest one day, and you know, Father Francis is is the sort of person I would have loved to be, right? You no know, a, a, yeah. you know, of a, a very compassionate and and extremely cultured um, yeah. individual. Yeah. Uh, so I just love this, you know, I just love how he. Uh, I, what I really love about him is is deep deep humility and this and it, it, it all comes from loving compassion amazing yep. amazing amazing character yeah for sure so you know and i think there's, there is there seems to be this sort of i would call it this eurasian grammar uh, of spirituality where it's you have basically breath-based meditation techniques that involve the body but not so much with the idea of running away from the world but actually in order to transmute to to transfigurate our uh or to transfigure sorry to transfigure our present reality through light mm. and that seems to be a common theme wow. now for example in eastern orthodoxy where you actually don't really have at least theoretically speaking the notion of a subtle body yeah uh because of you know uh because of teachings on 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 on, on dogmatic anthropology is what happened in the, the second council of constantinople is that yeah. in the threefold um division of the human being into spirit soul body was reduced to a dualism of you know um spiritual soul versus right. body right so what what happened as a consequence is that the intermediate intermediary realm of yeah. you know uh divisions right uh, the, the 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 visionary world is basically has been lost, and with it, of course, the notion of subtle body. Because what's interesting is that when you uh, when you listen to these interviews of these starets of these um, you know hesychast uh, elders, uh, and how they describe how basically you have to bring the Holy Spirit through your breath into into your hearts, and then when when you know when grace uh they, of course they use christian language talk about it when grace uh basically you know uh, invades you so to speak the the you, you, the your left nipple starts to burn and mm -hmm. then your entire spinal cord basically is inflamed with this with this fire and it's like tumo huh tumo you <laughs> exactly exactly right it's it's exactly that and you feel this um you know euphoric type of love and you cry these tears of joy, right? 
Um, and, and then you have similar practices. I was initiated in, the, in a Sufi order in, in, um, in Iran uh, in 2009. I unfortunately, for, um, for, for personal reasons, had to you know, part ways with them. But it's pretty much the same way. So you, you're, giving a, uh, you're given a um, specific name of God that you're supposed to repeat with your breath. And so you bring the breath into uh, the, the, the level of the solar plexus of your, of your heart, right? The heart chakra, so to speak. And you do this, you know, normally silently, right? And the idea is that, uh, of course, it's, it's preferred to do it in a, a comfortable seated position, but you're actually supposed to do it constantly, uh, even when you're at work and, and also, and it's, very important but silently so the idea is that you should be sitting on the bus and you should be doing that with your neighbor not noticing that you're actually engaged in meditative practice yeah and so and this is also known as um as muraqaba uh, muraqaba is the um, is the idea is the idea of being um watchful of, of sort of being mindful actually and what's um, very often used, and that's even in the mystical circles in the seminary in Qom, for example, um, where that's the that's the that's where the uh, the Ayatollahs basically get uh, you know get uh, get trained. Um, so there are even within that environment, you have mystical circles, and uh, within those mystical circles, they teach they, they also teach Murakaba, this this whole focus on your breath. Uh, yes. A bit like in Shamata, basically, right? Focusing on your breath, and then basically, you know, um, observing your thoughts, being mindful of your thoughts, and and um, and, and and so that's that's and that is what I do. And um, so my Oops. case is 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 my case is 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 um, is a bit uh, it's not typical because first of all, I was born in the West. Um, I came across uh, meditation before I converted very, very later on to Islam. So my approach to thing has always been deep, uh, deep in a, in a, in a, a sort of more Indic understanding mm -hmm. of, of mystical tradition, right? Um, so my, um, you know, uh, my heroes, you know, were in those days were Milarepa and, uh, you know, Amazing. And Guru Rinpoche, and and and, yeah. and they still are to some extent. Actually, uh, I think when I was 18 years old. I think I I I, I painted uh, sort of a bunker of, of Mirapa oh, wow. uh, with, with whatever material I had around. And it was it wasn't. It was, I had a book about bunkers, and then I just you know with whatever material I had uh, around with watercolors and gouache, I, I I created my own painting of of, of uh, with Mirapa. Uh, so that was that's what I um, that's what I used since the age of yeah sixteen. I would I would you know I and I actually saw um, I actually saw that the, I now realize how it helped me in my life. I mean, because of the work that I do, I have to learn a great deal of languages. So I have something like you know fourteen different languages under my belt. People ask me why, and I tell them, look. I'm not a particular genius because I don't have, I don't even have a driving license. I actually yeah. keep, keep it a secret, right? But right. I failed my driving license that's not twice, but thrice. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. 
But uh, that's because, you know, I've been, I've been practicing uh, meditation half an hour a day uh, you know, since I was 16. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, of course, your attention span and, and, and that whole force has, in, uh, you know, your attention span increases and your ability to, to, to just concentrate increases, right? That's right. And, and that is why I, I think that not including meditation in, in a school curriculum is, is just criminal. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, I really hope, uh, I really look forward to basically you know, teaching it to my own kids one day. But uh, so this is, this, is, this is the way I do it. I, I, even when I was initiated in that uh, Sufi order, I, I would, of course, try to do it the way they taught me, basically, you know, uh, doing my everyday activities, you know, doing it with my breath. But then I would always go back to at least, you know, uh, a good 25, 30 minutes of daily, you know, seated meditation. Because that's, that's always been my bread and butter. And in a sort of, you know, in, 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 a, in, a, in a bit of a tongue-in-cheek sort of way, uh, you know, Buddhist meditation has, has helped me become a better Muslim. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Oh, what, that's what his holiness, yeah, yeah. as you know, it's what his holiness the Dalai Lama says. You know, he said, don't, yeah. please, please don't convert to Buddhism. Just use perhaps these practices to make you a better Christian or a better Jew or, or a better Muslim. And one, one thing that I want to interject here, um, Yusuf, is, is when you were talking about the uh, Baraka, this, is, this has a very powerful analog in Shambhala Buddhism where they talk about the practice of lungta or, or raising wind horse. Where, where yeah. it's just not only working with breath in that capacity, but you're working with um, raising uh, this inner lung in, uh, in a, a deeply spiritual way. And, and so it's another yeah. one of these fantastically beautiful cross-cultural types of yeah. processes that work with the notion of spirit or, or breath at these foundational yeah. levels. So again, I'm, I'm deeply interested in all that. But here's my suggestion um, for today, because we, we generally don't try to push our guests past the hour and a half mark. Um, I, I yeah. feel that we, we have a, just a wonderful a preparatory groundwork laid for what we can return to, um, you know, perhaps in a couple of weeks or so, where we can start sure. to unpack some of these remarkable pearls that you have been sending to me about the, the Islamic views of, of the inner body, inner yogas, dream yoga, and the like, because uh, for me, it's not so much substantiating what I'm doing in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, but it's just the exhilaration of realizing that no one has a patent on these truths, that, that all these wonderful traditions, when they ex simply ex explore interiority, they, they come to somewhat similar discoveries. And so as we start to, if this works for you, um, because what you're shared with us is, is so foundational, I think so important as a basis, as we start to close up for today and before we come back, you know, if it works for you in a couple of weeks to talk with all these other questions I had in mind about some of these specificities around nocturnal practices, et cetera. Oh, is sure. there any, anything else that you might want to pass along with us, share with us within the context of what we've discussed so far today? Um, no, I think, I think the books that I've indicated, I think are, are, um, you know, if people want to go back to proper readings, I think the, the books that I've indicated are, would be extremely helpful. I think that they're, they're, you know, they're, there's, there's, there's plenty there to basically have a, a, 
a good understanding of the stuff that we're, we're going to be discussing in, in, in our school. That's fantastic. And, and when, and when might, we, uh, might we expect um, some books from yourself? I mean, do you have any, any, well, uh, anything on the horizon? Yeah, so I'm, so I'm, I'm writing this article at the moment about uh, this, this, this work that I mentioned to you, right? Mm -hmm. This 9th century work on, on, on Islamic dream work that was written by this uh, mystic of the 19th century, uh, Mizan Nuri Tabrisi. Um, so the title of the book is The Devoted Peace, Melodic to Visions and Dreams. Um, that book basically describes uh, how to uh, incubate dreams to um, uh, see the prophet and the, 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 the prophetic household and how to receive teaching from him or them, but also how to, you know, uh, how to progress. And it's, uh, so it's four and, and a whole section on how to, um, you know, on, dream, uh, on, on day practices as well that prepare yeah. you for, for the nighttime. And, I'm just reading today. It's like uh, you know the physician that he advises. Um, there's actually you know the the it's, it's actually the prophetic advice for people to to engage in dream work is actually the same physician that is uh, used in Tibetan dream yoga, which is the no sleeping kidding. lying physician. No kidding. Wow. You know, which by the way is also the the, the physician in people in, in which uh, in which people are buried in the Islamic tradition as well. Yeah. Uh, wow. So this is yeah, this this fascinating stuff it because um, yeah. So there's that. Uh, I'm 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 trying to uh, basically I, I hope to be able to uh, publish my my doctoral thesis. Um, I was dealing with uh, pre-reformist Sikhism, and it, it was a bit of a let's say hot subject uh, to say the least, because I I lived among Sikhs for. Years and the uncut hair and the turban and so, yeah. so forth. Six right. years of my life. Yeah, so that's a, that's a, that's a whole different thing. But um, yeah, so and and I'm very grateful for, for for the spiritual hospitality that I I received from you know the traditional Sikh community, and so I was able to unearth what what Sikhism was like before that the there was a movement that you know came about and. and, and that took over the Sikh temples and that sort of imposed very Protestantized, very Westernized sort of Sikhism. And but the uh, the earlier stuff is much more fascinating because the, the tantric stuff is much more present there. Uh, so references to Mahagali and uh, you know left tantric practices and so on and so forth. And there are even some uh, there were there are even some uh, let's say. Um, uh, exchanges, I think, that took place with uh, the color track of the tradition uh, mm -hmm. regarding the uh, the prophecy of the King of Allah. So this is all things so. So I hope. So I'm 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 now basically um, writing the uh, writing the proposal for it. I hope uh, that I'll uh, I'll get it published next year. So I'm working on this other thing called uh, the Zen of Islam. So um, uh, it's it's uh, it's 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 about really not not just this looking at the common ground between the Islamic tradition and Buddhism, but really um, it's it's um, how to put it. Uh, the best way for me to describe it is that 
um, so when I visited Washington in 2011, uh, there was an exhibition of uh, these Japanese uh, paintings of the Arhat. Mm. And there was one, one of the Arhat was holding a mirror and who has this thief was looking into the mirror, but the mirror image was actually the Buddha. Oh, Meaning well, that, you yeah, know, right. Right. Better nature. And yeah. what, I'm, what, I'm, what I'm trying to do is that um, basically, um, I think that Muslims exploring Buddhism may help us rediscover the quote unquote Buddha nature of our own tradition. Yeah, no kidding. And uh, and that's I think it's it's uh, it's it's very important to and this which is one of the reasons why I you know I, I insisted on teaching mindfulness meditation in Pakistan. Uh, it's for first of all to get people out of their comfort zone uh, in in terms of identity politics, and then realize that you know there is this dimension to your own tradition that you think only exists in another tradition. Actually, it's always been there. Right? And so I, I'm, 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 I'm um, you know, I'm collecting material for that, and I hope to have it, you know, ready by 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 next year. Yeah. Uh, so, and I'm also, you know, I'm also looking into into different sources. There's uh, at the moment I'm collecting material on the uh, the role of the uh, of the holy fool, right? Hmm. Um, so, uh, Islamic... Sorry. Are you talking about yeah, 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 right. Yeah, yeah, Nasruddin, yeah, yeah, and, and, and uh, but there's, there's, um, there's actually even earlier examples of that sort of uh, tradition. And, you know, and, um, and people realize that, you know, if we lose that, uh, and we're actually, as a society, as societies in the Muslim world, we, we've pretty much lost that. Yeah. Um, then we're losing a very important, of, uh, a very important aspect of our tradition because you know, the prophet, the prophet used to say that the uh, the, 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 the true believer, and I, I don't like the word believer, the mu'min is actually the one who keeps the um, the sacred deposit of of, of, of faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone's always cheerful, so you know someone cracks jokes, right? And, uh, and once you lose that, uh, once religion starts to take itself a bit too seriously, then we see we see we see horrible you know horrible results in the society we live in. And yeah. we need to we need to be able to you know start to laugh again, um, you know. And um, so I'm, uh, so I'm collecting material about that, but I'm also going to talk about the the subtle body, um, you know, and um, the work that I'm, I'm presently doing, of course, on, 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 on dream work, because I, I do believe that are, I mean, in the same way that Father Francis has talked about, you know, the, the, the rainbow uh, body, mm-hmm. I think that there's possibly a, 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 a sort of historical dialogue that happened uh, between basically Tibetan Buddhism and early Islam regarding this whole dream work practice. So this is a theory. I, I, you know, I could be wrong, but so I'm exploring this a bit more. Well, but, maybe. Uh, yeah. I, no, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish. So for me, it's the it's 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 very important to to. I think Muslims have this big problem that because of colonialism, they're only looking for the modern West for answers to their problems, and. Um, while I think a lot of stuff can be learned from from, you know, from from the West, I think there's also time to 
uh, you know, to continue the great work of, uh, of people like Al-Biruni or Mir Fendereski, who were scholars who explored uh, in Indian religions and and not in a not in the um, not a, in a desire to disprove them, but actually to learn uh, and to look for traces of wisdom. Because, um, for example, in the Shi'i tradition, uh, the Buddha is actually seen as a, an inspired sage or a, even as a prophet. Right. A lot of people don't know about that. Yeah. And. Uh, Traditionally speaking, you know the great the great sages of Islam, uh, you know, not only looked for, you know, not only looked at Athens as you know one of the sources of pre-Islamic wisdom, but also to the East, and that's lost. Yeah. And um, it's like you know it's like breathing with with just one 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 lung, and right. we need both. Yeah. We absolutely need both. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it's so rich. We we have so many directions we can take our conversation in the future and so oh, yeah. with your permission let's return to this because we're, we're transitioning now into what originally sparked our communication which is in fact the working with a dream state um, and so at, at this point um, it, with with your indulgence let's revisit those uh, topics in a couple of weeks when we have a chance to digest yeah, sure. you know, the elegance of what you just sure. presented to us because I think in, in so many respects creating the kind of context you know so that we're just not pulling these teachings out of thin air that we realize they're, they're situated yeah, yeah, yeah. in a particular yeah, yeah. framework. It's, it's really important preparatory work. And so I, I will be mm -hmm. in contact with you. Um, let's come back oh, on and, and these remarkable contributions that you've sent to me behind the um, curtain, so to speak, uh, we can bring these out and share with others and, and talk about in more detail, dream incubation, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, some of the parallels. I mean, I, I, some of these things I didn't know at all. Um, and so I, for one, have been sitting here um, taking voluminous notes and, and educating. And so this is a real delight. It's one of the kind of capacities that we try to cultivate with our community is in fact, this kind of discourse um, and you know, sharing wisdoms from different cultures. And so my dear new friend, um, so great to make contact with you on this level. Uh, let's do it again and, okay. and enter into the dream world and, and take these uh, conversations <laughs> even further, okay? <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm very honored. Very honored. Yeah. Similarly here. All the best to you, my friend. So we'll, we'll stay in touch very Thank shortly. Thank you. You too. We'll you set too. up another time. Thank you. Talk soon. Okay. Perfect. Thank you so much. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us, everybody. And of course, a special thanks to Yusuf for sharing his incredible knowledge. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out all the other offerings on Nightclub. There's a lot happening at the club these days. But until next time, pleasant dreams. <laughs>